The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our, like, top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. And Alice Sneddon's Bad News Saves the World. I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can see the anxiety starting to emit from you. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. And welcome to Business is Boring. The Internet of Things has seen internet enabled fridges, washing machines, doorbells, and TVs become commonplace. And you might have seen how people are grappling with creating operating systems that can secure and work between so many devices from so many different makers. Hacked fridges can sound pretty funny. But it gets much more serious if you are talking about the risks that internet-enabled devices, switches and sensors for infrastructure like a water network can pose. Making critical connected devices radically more secure and user-friendly is the mission of a new Kiwi-born company called Crichton. It's just coming out of stealth mode, having worked out a way to make incredibly complicated maths form the basis for its security. Boyd Moulterer is the founder and CEO, and it's not his first rodeo when it comes to networks. He was a key member of the Xbox Live team, who worked out how to connect living rooms across the world, often ahead of the technology being widely available. He carried on to a huge and long career at Microsoft before coming to New Zealand, thanks to a clever spreadsheet and the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. To hear more about his journey here, the company, and where it's all going, Boyd Moulterer joins us now. Tenakwe, thank you for being here. Well, it's great to be here. Hey, so tell us about that experience that you had on the Xbox at Microsoft. What were you up to there? What was I up to on Xbox? So um, that was a that was a long time ago. It was um, it was summer in the U.S. It was summer of two thousand. And a friend of mine named Jay Allard had uh, had gotten approval, and Xbox was the thing, and they'd had this giant argument over whether they're going to put a modem in it or put an Ethernet port in it. Because in 2000, you know, broadband hadn't really happened yet. So they decided to take a risk, and they put an Ethernet port in the back, and then he asked me to come join the team. And uh, my job was basically, okay, the Ethernet port's in the box, go figure out what it talks to. So Xbox Live was effectively me in a room by myself, for a little while, and then I got to hire everybody, and we had a whole lot of discussions on what it should be when it grew up, built it, uh, shipped it three, four times. Um, it was a really interesting experience because we did not know what we were doing, right? This was before big scale-out websites and scale-out data centers, so we took a bunch of risks. We decided to bet big on web technologies, on small computers, but lots and lots of them. We had to make predictions of bandwidth costs and uh, and that it was going to go down because it was way too expensive to justify doing something like that when we started. And um, 
basically, that was there's this big lesson I think I learned around that time, which is if you're going to build something, don't build for the costs and the reality when you start building it. Build for the costs and the reality when you're done building it. And if it's going to take you two years, you build for the costs that you see happening two years from now. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're dealing with something like Xbox, you're actually helping to change the model, aren't you? As that became very quickly, what was it, the largest network uh, in the world once it was released? Depends how you're measuring. But when we started, um, you know, it's hard to it's hard, look at today's world. It's hard to explain what, where we were in 2000. Facebook wasn't a thing yet. Um, MySpace wasn't a thing yet. The, there were no social networks. So we were sitting there thinking about, well, how do people play games on consoles? You've got one group that they bring their friends over, they have some beer, they play a football game. You've got another group where they go off on their PC by themselves. How do we merge these groups and what binds them together? And we, and after a bunch of work and a bunch of research, we decided, hey, it's because they want to play with their friends. And eventually they're going to graduate university or wherever and they're going to scatter. So how do we keep them together? And without using these words and without knowing we were doing it, I think we kind of built the first social network. And that's really how I think about what Xbox Live is. It's a place for you to find your friends and to join in games with them and to have an experience together. And once it was out in the world as well, it was the first kind of at scale um, network that could be a vector for all kinds of things, right? So, yeah, what all, kind yeah. of um, what kind of considerations went into building something like that? Ooh, um, it depends on what you mean by all kinds of things. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. We were worried about. Uh, we were trying to make a lot of good things happen. We were really worried about a lot of bad things happening. Um, we were worried about privacy. We were worried about privacy being used against us. Like, imagine you're making game consoles and people are going to be talking to each other, but it's an encrypted connection because you don't want people cheating. And then you realize, oh, wait, this could be used for bad guys to plan stuff. And how do you balance that? And how do you bring in strong encryption and government's care? And we had to get, like, export approvals to ship this thing. Uh, we had to get import approvals from some companies to bring it in because we had strong encryption. So we had to worry both about the good network effects of putting a system like that together, but also preventing bad effects. Um, and that was really interesting and hard to balance. What was it that, and, and being part of a project like that, you know, like you're saying, the costs will come down. They kind of came down because of the success at scale of, of these, um, the, these kind of things. Hey, like, what then led you to be looking uh, toward New Zealand? Oh, how did I get to New Zealand? Um, well, we were talking about Xbox Live, but I actually did three things on Xbox, and they all led to coming here. So Xbox Live was first, and then there was like five years of building the developer program. And then the last five years, I ran operating system development for Xbox One. And during that total time, you've built data centers, you've built operating systems, you've seen devices getting hacked, and you end up in this, in this world where you've got a whole lot of things you need to balance. And after I left Microsoft, you know, we made this decision to go and do Crichton and go worry about IoT and all that. And you think about where's the skills, where's the talent, where's, where's the center of the world in the tech that you want to use, and that ends up being in Australasia. 
which was a little bit of a surprise to learn. There's there's this thing we can talk about called uh, formally verified systems, and this, really the center of the world is in Australasia. Is, is that right? Is that right? So you, t- t- tell us what, what what are formally verified systems, and how come that's in Australasia? Okay, so formally, so formal verification is a it's like the merging of computer science and mathematics. And frankly, I don't know how to do it. It's really hard. And in computer science schools, there's, you know, there'll usually be a class in formal systems, and it starts like this. Okay, we're going to learn about formal systems. It's extremely hard, and you will never use it, but you should know it's there. <laughs> so at University of New South Wales, uh, the computer science department teamed up with the math department. And uh, they've frankly brought in people from all over the world, really experts in it, and they created this research project that effectively built the first working lowest level of a system and then formally verified it, which is sort of like saying, um, you know, in normal software, you test things and you try a different bunch of different parameters and you see if it works and you see if it doesn't work and then you hope that there aren't any parameters that you missed. In formal systems, you're using math to try all parameters, like at the same time. So you know it's going to work. And it's extremely hard to do and extremely expensive and extremely slow. And it's amazing that they pulled it off. And it gives us a building block that we can work on. So after Microsoft, I'm talking to my wife, and um, we were trying to decide, where do we want to live? Right? We're at this moment when um, normally you know, work chooses where you're going to live. And we could choose where we wanted to do it instead. So uh, we had this long conversation about the parameters that we care about. Uh, this included everything from currency stability, uh, government corruption statistics, traffic, temperature, rainfall, uh, solar incidents, um, currency exchange rates to the U.S., healthcare systems, education systems, uh, average commute times, distance from Sydney, which is the center of the world of formal systems, uh, speaking English, a whole bunch of things. And then uh, if we took all this and we put like 80 cities around the world, gathered normalized data. My wife took it. She took her computer science uh, data. I don't don't know how to do it. So she's like doing data science and biology and all that. And she built this model and crunched the numbers. And the top five cities, um, I don't remember the exact order, but I know the number one city was Wellington. The next four were Auckland, Sydney, Melbourne, and Stockholm, Sweden. (laughs) Right. So... We were like, whoa, that was kind of unexpected. So that began this journey of trying to figure out, well, how do we get in the perfect city for us? Yeah. That's so cool. And so <laughs> from doing a model, you worked out. And had, had New Zealand ever been on your radar before a model threw up two, two cities inside um, at the top five? Um, it had been in my radar in the sense that um, – you know, growing up in the U.S., New Zealand was this exotic, faraway place that I was always curious to go to. Um, a little bit of an adventure, wanting to see it. But then after the model, it was actually really freaky. So we did the model, we did the exercise, and like Wellington's number one, and I think Auckland's number two. And I'm not kidding, the next week, this is in 2016, so the next week, this article goes by, and the city of Wellington has this program called Look See Wellington. It's like, okay. And basically, the, the tech companies in Wellington had decided they were having trouble hiring people. So they put this program together. They invited people to put their resumes in. And uh, I'm like, well, what the heck? I'm probably overqualified for what they're doing, but maybe it'll, 
maybe it'll turn into something. Um, it didn't hear anything. Like months go by, the trip is supposed to be in a week, like the city of Wellington was going to pay, pay to fly people to Wellington, do job interviews, all that stuff. It's like a week before the thing is supposed to happen, and my phone rings, and it's this New Zealand phone number. And I pick it up, and they're like, hi, Boyd. So um, we were hoping to get 4,000 resumes, and instead we got 20,000. So we've been overwhelmed, and uh, we don't have any jobs that fit you, but we want to bring you anyway and show you why Wellington's a great place to do a startup. So they flew me to Wellington for a week. Um, I basically got driven around, talked to all these execs, got to understand the city, and I came back going, okay, yeah, this is the right place. Yeah. And then at the end, they're like, yeah, but now the bad news is we don't have any visas that would work for you. But we'll figure it out, which I'm kind of learning is a New Zealand thing. We'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a, and so did that get you into the Edmund Hillary Fellowship? Yeah, like six months later, people from Luxley Wellington call me up and they say, hey, we want you to go apply for Edmund Hillary. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Well, and so you're kind of like, I wonder where in the universe I should go. And then the universe sends you a plane ticket and <laughs> gets you to meet all the dignitaries. No, it was it was like actually weird. Yeah. Um, and, and looking back, I've actually spent some time this week reflecting on it because tomorrow is our... F- no, is it tomorrow? It's the end of the week is our four-year anniversary of being in New, in New Zealand, right? And it's like, wow, what, a, what an experience. Uh, I've been able to do what we need to do here because we're, we're close to Sydney. The talent I need to find has been around here. Um, I got a visa, which would let me start a, a start a business in New Zealand, which, by the way, the way to think of EHF really is that it is an innovative thing by government, right? And, and honest to God, innovation where they made it possible for me to come here and start a business and put down some roots and get the people I needed and actually try to build something. So this combination of things all kind of came together. And I look back and I think, New Zealand is probably the only place I could have started this. It it wasn't practical to do it from the States. There's no way I was going to get a visa to go to do it in in Australia. This is a special location and a special time and a special set of circumstances that made it possible. That's so cool. And tell us, what is it that you are setting up with Crichton? Okay, what, do I, what am I doing with Crichton? Yeah. Um, okay, so worked on Xbox a long time, did a bunch of stuff. Uh, that was also really stressful, effectively burned out. And during my year of recovery from all that stress, a lot of reflecting on things you learned. And eventually you realize that game consoles are big, fat, hot, plugged-in IoT devices. IoT meaning Internet of Things. And effectively, what's happening in the world is that devices that have like a cell phone quality chip in them and can run real software and make real decisions, they're super cheap now, and they're appearing everywhere. And any place you've got a device, there's a desire to put a brain in it that does something. But they're being built with systems, with software that date from the 80s and the 90s. So, in other words, modern operating systems were built for the chips of the 90s. (laughs) I've started saying lately, our modern operating systems were built in the previous century. The the last millennium. Yeah, the last millennium, which is kind of crazy, right? Yeah, because if someone says the 90s, because I'm I'm, I'm 40, and so I think, oh, yeah, that's reasonably recent. But then you're like, oh, my word, that's a long time ago. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Oh, that was done in the last century. Um, So the exercise became, well, what should it be? This is, these are machines that lives depend on. 
These are machines that bring water to our homes or electricity to our businesses or whatever. So if you could step back and go to first principles and say, well, if I could start over, how would you design a system aimed at devices with modern chips that are doing specific functions that need to be updated and they need to be um, they need to live and breathe and grow with you as your business grows, and yet they also have to be secure, and they have to be robust. How would you how would you build that? And that's our mission. That's what we're doing. We are built. It's we'd say we're building a new operating system, but it's better to say it's a new platform because a platform is more than just an OS. It's it's a software that runs on a device. It's software that runs on servers. It's a management system. How do you tie them all together? Yeah, and that idea of you know a platform or an operating system is something that's probably very uh, you know people understand. Um, you know there are updates that they get on their uh, Mac or right. you know Windows. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and, that, and and there have been lots of highly publicized cases of you know people having their smart fridge hacked or you know people having their car with a early an early operating system built for a 90s chip or something hacked and you definitely don't want that right yeah, but it, but it's it's, right. it's more than just those consumer devices isn't it because you were saying before the water the utilities the things that actually society relies on yeah. are also running on uh, and, you know, if you've ever walked in the background of any um, of, of, of any big kind of institution and then seen that they've still got dot matrix printers and uh, 30-year-old PCs, they're, they're running on some very old systems. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, we're not specifically targeting consumer systems, but what we're building could be used on them. But think of it. Think of it like you're um, you're running a factory or a water utility or something that's like a mission critical thing. The mission that the, a device is doing is worth way more than the device itself. And yet, it's in a position where it's making decisions and it's controlling processes and all that. So when you do these updates, you have to know that only you can do the update. Even if the factory across the street's got a hundred of the exact same device, they can't update yours, and you can't update theirs. And what you mentioned, the Mac and Windows, and these are systems and consumer systems, you've got a company that would control all the devices. Like Apple chooses when to send out an update for all the iPhones, right? And when one of your apps is going to be updated, somebody decides that they're going to make the, make the update and roll it out to everybody. In a factory, you don't do that. The person running the factory must have control on the software in the factory. They've integrated it. They've got an operational technology team and, they, and monitors and all kinds of stuff, right? They have to control that experience and choose when the update happens. So it kind of changes your orientation. It's no longer, it's not us choosing when all the devices update. It's fleets of machines that get managed as a group by whoever owns them. And they have to, and you have to use strong cryptography and good key management in order to enforce that. Yeah, that's magic. And we'll be back in a moment to hear more from Boyd about how you go about building a platform and operating system for a whole new set of problems. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? 
Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. New Zealand's number one business school wants to help you unlock your potential. At the University of Auckland Business School, learn to innovate, research and collaborate with business leaders to drive real change. Join the business school that's doing things differently and find your passion at the University of Auckland. Check out auckland.ac.nz forward slash business to find the study option for you. And we're back with Boyd Malterer of Crichton. So it's a huge opportunity, right? So there's ginormous all of these institutions and utilities and, and, and they all need to know, um, like, yeah, yeah t- tell us what are the kind of things they're using all of these internet of things devices to know, like water level or um, uptime or everything, I guess, in a modern in a modern kind of context of a system. All right. So um, when we think of devices, and especially when you hear the phrase IoT, um, I think there's actually two markets. And we're going after one of them and not the other. The first market, and probably the the easier one to get started in, is little devices. So a device that sits on your wall, it measures the temperature, and it squirts some data up somewhere, and it records it. It's not really making decisions. It's not really a two-way thing. It's a sensor that's out there. Uh, Those tend to be... um, have batteries and be very power sensitive, and that is not what we're going after. There's other companies that are doing it, and they're pretty specific. The other world is this is a bigger device. It's got software loaded on it. That software can get updated. You can put apps on it, and it is making decisions. It's also talking on the internet. It's going two-directional communications, and it's maybe making decisions, right? So, um, hey, what should the water pressure be in my neighborhood? Um, uh, how much gas should you move through the distribution network and when? Um, maybe it's sensing that something's going wrong and it's going to choose to shut down the valves. Or maybe it's on a satellite and it's making other decisions. Right? The things that you know that are in common is you've got a device, it's getting data in real time, it's making decisions, it's communicating with someone who's remote, and then importantly, that device is physically hard to get to. Right. So it could just be on, down the block, but if you have to leave your building and walk there and pay someone to go down the street and get to it, it's now expensive and hard to get to. And the harder it is, the more, the more valuable that device becomes. So first thing you have to do is understand what problem are you solving. Right. So if this is like step one. The second thing, and in order to kind of confirm this and wrap my head around it, I did this trip where I went to the UK. And I did this tour of natural gas distributors, starting like up in Glasgow, all the way down to Brighton, and trying to understand, well, how do they measure data? How, what do they do with that? What problems do they have? And I was talking to one where they had like a thousand trucks that roll every day fixing gas leaks. And I'm like, so do you measure these things? What do you do with the data? How do you get the data? How do you manage your, your devices? And they had uh, bought iPhones for there was, every truck had two people, 1,000 trucks, two people per truck. They'd bought everyone an iPhone, written an app that went on those iPhones. 
Um, and then, of course, you know, it's a, it's a cell phone, so the kids would delete the app or they'd put, their, put a game on it. And so then they paid another company like a thousand pounds per year to make sure that app stayed installed and would be launched every morning. And it blew my mind how much money they were spending just to have one app on a phone that would communicate with Bluetooth, the equipment on the truck. And it's like, oh, what you really want um, is what they really wanted was a computer that would be bolted to the truck that the operators don't have anything to do with. There's no UI on it. The, the operators, the people driving the truck don't even interact with the thing. The engineer in the center, central office can choose what software goes onto it. They can choose to measure the battery levels of the, of the tools on the truck. They can choose to watch the equipment on the truck and decide, ah, this one needs maintenance. Right. They can choose to say, oh, you're going to this part of the city. It's got this kind of ground, so we're going to change the way it works so it compacts the ground appropriately if it's like gravel or clay or whatever. Right. But the point was, first, you got to understand the problem. And it was about, that was when I really realized that these, the owners of a fleet of devices needed control and that every fleet is somewhat bespoke. You've got devices that may look the same, but they're configured differently for every facility. All right, so how do you go about building this? First thing you have to do is really go understand the problem you're going after. And that means talking to actual customers. And when they are customers like utility providers and that security is so important, how do you... So, so this system really has been designed with security at its heart, as opposed to, as opposed to a lot of the systems of the past that um, that really weren't designed with security at their at their heart, were they? Yeah. Well, let's let's start with that. Uh, systems of the past were designed to work in front of a human, right? A, they really in the nineties they weren't they weren't even designed to work with the internet, so that just wasn't something they were worried about. But then, if something really did go wrong, the human would cut the power and restart the machine. These are devices that are not sitting there with a human, and they have to be remoted. Building something that has security, though, is a tough sell, right? If you go to, if you go to someone and you say, hey, I've got a better device and it's got better security, um, maybe they'll get it, and maybe they'll be like, well, this just sounds like a cost because if it works, I have the same product I have today. If security doesn't work, of course, then they're in trouble and they have big costs, but until it happens, they don't appreciate it. Uh, what you can do is you can say, hey, you've got this fleet of devices that you want to maintain the software on, you want to manage them. And I'll, there's other companies that are going down the management path, but really, you can't solve management until you've solved security. How do you know that you're the only one who can push software to your device? How do you know a bad guy out there can't push their software onto your device? How do you lock that down? So you have to solve security and you have to solve robustness in order to enable management. Management is the thing you can sell, right? Security and robustness end up being prerequisites in order to build the management service. And other companies that are in the space, they just go straight to the management because they're building on legacy systems which are just fundamentally insecure. So you have to, ste you have to step back and you gotta go back to the beginning. And with something like this, you know, is it a case of there's going to be one, you know, like like Windows or, or something, like one system that ends up becoming the, um, the the programming language or the operating system of choice for, uh, you, know, you know, a whole industry? Or are, uh, is there room for a whole number of different approaches um, to how you get Internet of Things devices to talk to each other? No, it's a great question. Um, and it's almost one I've purposefully ignored. 
Now, if okay, my gut says there probably is a um, there is a scale opportunity, right? Where once you have enough scale, then you can manage your costs and you can do you start getting momentum in a winner take all sort of sort of a manner. But there's a ton of diversity in these devices, so I wouldn't be surprised if there end up being specialized versions of it. What we're building is simultaneously generic, right? Where you can build almost any device on it but also extremely specific, where there are very specific rules of how it gets made in order to enforce the security properties that we want. Um, Would that lead toward a market dynamic where it could become a dominant player? Maybe. It might be able to be, but that's not necessarily what I'm targeting. I'm targeting building the thing people want. And so then do you let other people build on your platform? Absolutely. Absolutely. It It is in its truest sense a platform. So there are so many devices out there, and they're all different. They may look similar. They may have the same CPU. They may have some similar sensors, but they're all configured differently. So the idea of building a platform is I'm going to make it really easy for other people to build devices where they don't have to worry about the security part. But how to put it? They end up experts in their domain, and I don't have to learn their domain. My domain is knowing how to build a device that's secure and robust. And then I'm going to let you focus on the thing you know. Let me, let me take a step back. When I started this, so I'd left Microsoft. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do and had this moment where I'm like, you know, what's, what's the biggest impact I can have? And I'm worried about climate change. I'm worried about a whole bunch of different things. And what, just think about climate change for a sec. I'm never going to be a great chemist. That's just, I didn't do that well in chemistry. But it's important. I can't do the chemistry, but I can support the people who do. So if I make a platform that would let the chemist put a device out there that can do the right measurements or control equipment in the right way to improve the situation we're in, then I've had the biggest impact I can. And by having a... You know, having a platform others can build on, not try to have a walled garden uh, or or, or not try to keep everything for yourself. You can enable what more robust uh, networks and better measurement and better decision making. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, this is where, you know, you start getting um, ecosystems that start to reinforce each other. There's a lot of challenges in doing this. We have to have enough developers who know how to do it. And they have to know the best practices to make a good device. Because this is a new system, right? So there are some different rules than they're used to. But once you know it, you can build devices very quickly that are very secure. So how do you get the different players involved, get them all educated, and then you get this flywheel spinning that keeps the ecosystem running? And you've got some pretty impressive people around the business as well. Hey, tell us about some of those people and what state you're at. Like, um, where is Crichton at the moment and what's about to happen? Okay. Um, Let's talk about the people first. So uh, at the high level and at the low level, we've been incredibly fortunate, right? We have found some of the most amazing people. Some people are contacts that I knew from the U.S. and others are people that I found here. So let's start with, uh, so Jay Allard, who was at Microsoft and um, he's, he like got the Xbox funded and he's, he's like one of my product heroes. So he's on the board. And he's giving us his sage wisdom. By the way, he just took a new job as the chief product officer for GoFundMe. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right? Really impressive. Uh, Then I get here, and I find Kent McLeod, who is a Kiwi, 
actually Kiwi and Maori and in Sydney and turns out he's like one of the best formally verified systems people in the world. And then he's helping build the team in Sydney. Uh, and then I'm sitting here in New Zealand and we're building and building and building and we're getting ready to come out and come out of stealth mode basically in the next two months. And uh, Movac did an investment in us and Lavina McMurchie uh, was the partner who, who drove that investment. Super smart. She is super smart. And uh, for various reasons, she's moving back to Seattle and she has left Movac and she's joined us and she's now our chief operating officer. And then um, other people that I met when I got here include people like Jason Fox and Mahi Porini, who are both really smart in their respective areas. Jason's really high energy and good at negotiating and and just naturally good at some of the sales things. And Mahi brings a whole bunch of government expertise and understanding where directions are going. So this is kind of diverse group of people that happen to be here, a few from the, free from the states who are, who are involved, but it's ended up being this team that is really high power, like higher power than the size of the company maybe says they should be. Mm. And where do you see this going? Like, what are the short-term plans? Okay, so the short-term plan is we are effectively uh, shipping the first version November, December, something like that. Uh, we're going to be coming out and having a couple of big talks at some conferences over the next couple of months. We are ready for um, people to go and start building devices. Uh, there's lots of ways to approach from a business perspective. How do you go after those markets? Are you looking for like people who need 100 devices here or 100 devices there? Or are you going for contractors? In a platform world, we, um, we can't build everyone's devices. We don't scale that way. But what we can scale to is I can work with all the contract development shops of the world. Uh, they're called ISVs. So I can work with ISVs and I can train them up and they can go build devices for people. And we have to make sure we have a system that makes them successful and makes it easy for them to get jobs and them to get work done. And then that will help our business. And what advice would you have for people looking to to start a company, um, maybe <laughs> maybe moving to a new country, uh, maybe um, running distributed businesses. Yeah, what 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 would, advice would you have for people thinking about making the leap for themselves? Okay, the first piece of advice is you have to know what problem you're solving. Right above all, you have to know what problem area you're in, and that means understanding what your customers need, but not just what they need right now, not just what your customer's problem is today. You have to make some predictions about what the problem is going to be. Like I started working on this thing almost six years ago, right? This was before the Ukraine war. It was before a lot of the attacks that have happened in the last couple of years. It was kind of before all the ransomware waves. But you look at the system of the world even six years ago, and you can see it's on foundations from the 90s. And you can see what's going to happen. So you start building for that, right? Then you have to survey people who are experts in kind of some of the related fields. Like part of what got me going down this, I called up some friend of mine's, friends of mine who build devices for the US military. Now we are not targeting military. We're targeting industry and critical infrastructure. 
but you know, I'll talk to my friends who build stuff for the military. And the conversation basically went like this. It's like, um, well, I can't tell you who my customers are, and I can't tell you what we're building. <laughs> I can tell you they all require that it's built on the SEL4 microkernel out of Sydney. Okay, write that down. I don't know what that is, so I'm going to have to go learn it. And you go learn it, and it opened up this whole world of formally verified systems. That's when you discover that Australasia is the center of world and this sort of technology, right? And then you start putting all the pieces together. Here's the problems. Here's the available technologies. Here's the way you can build your new first principles, uh, and that lets you get started. And then, this because this is the thing that's going to take a while to build, you start that first, and then you start working on your marketing and your go-to-market strategies and all that. That's magic. Um, and as a final kind of thought, what will success be for you and what will success be for Crichton? Well, the ambition is crazy big, right? The, the ambition of what we're trying to do is, is, is nothing short of trying to move the whole world into a better place with respect to devices and enabling people to succeed at solving the problems they're focused on. Right. So at the end of the day, we're measuring success by have we built a thing that basically improves the state of the world? Now, that's a big statement. So uh, short-term goals, uh, turns out platforms are hard to build. They take a long time to build. There's this long, slow incubation period, so you have to have enough runway. You have to manage your burn rate. You have a whole lot of practical considerations in order to buy enough time. It's not like a consumer product where you can put a website out there and three months later you're getting data. This is years of effort to build this thing before people can even build a device on it. right? So it's a different mindset. It's, it's about that slow burn, managing your, your finances, managing your, your rates, and yet still building that momentum because when it takes off, it's going to go crazy. All right, so short term, we've got to survive till, that, till we get to that point. Uh, long term, it's going to be everywhere. Yeah, that's magic. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you for coming and sharing the story of that today. I can't wait to see where you take it next. Uh, although Thanks. we won't be seeing it. Uh, we'll be seeing the effects of it in our day-to-day -day lives. But unless we're involved in kind of critical infrastructure, network management stuff. <laughs> that's right, that's right. But we'll see the effects everywhere, hey? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that story. It's Boyd Malterer of Crichton today. Thank you. So thank you to Boyd, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Te Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.